Why is seminary so expensive? At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, we are committed to the reform of theological education toward meeting the needs of churches across the globe. Men of God cannot serve their churches well if they are burdened with tens of thousands of dollars in student loans from seminary. At CBTS, you can receive a robust theological education for nearly four times less than other institutions. To find out more about how you can receive an accredited theological degree at a cost that you can afford, visit cbtseminary.org. You have turned into the Man of God podcast a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan. For more narrations and teachings, go to the narrated Puritan at sermonaudio.com. The following book is published by the Banner of Truth Trust, though it was written in about 1859. I only mention the present publisher to give it validity because it is the most amazing story of revival that I have ever read in the history of the church, and I've been studying this stuff for 40 years. I am reading from a first edition to avoid any kind of copyright infringement, But I am sad to say the story is pretty much forgotten in our day. This revival that started in Manhattan in 1857 spread to Europe. Separate books were written on the extent of the revival in Ireland, Wales, and England. Those titles are The Year of Grace by William Gibson, The Ulster Revival 1859, Authentic Records of Revival Now in Progress in the United Kingdom, William Reed, 1860. That book was published by Richard Owen Roberts Publishers, as well as The Welsh Revival of 1859 by Thomas Phillips. This is not a fiction. It is the most extensive revival I have ever read about, and yet I dare say it is forgotten. What I am giving you here is just part of the first chapter of a book telling this amazing story. I think you will find it very, very edifying and marvel that you didn't know this if you did not know it before. It is called The Layman's Prayer Revival of 1857 and 58. The Prayer Revival of 1857 and 1858, New York City, Samuel Prime. How the revival began in the upper lecture room of the old North Dutch Church in Fulton Street, New York City. A solitary man was kneeling upon the floor, engaged in earnest, importunate prayer. He was a man who lived very much in the lives of others, lived almost wholly for others. He had no wife or children, but there were thousands with their husbands and fathers without God and hope in the world, and the thousands were going to the gates of eternal death. It surveyed all the lower wards of the city as a lay missionary of the old church, and he longed to do something for their salvation. He knew it could do many things. He could take tracts in his hand, any and every day, and distribute them. He could preach the gospel from door to door. All this he had done. To reach his perishing thousands, he needed a thousand lives. Could not something more effectual be done? So day after day, and many times a day, this man was on his knees, and his constant prayer was, Lord, 
what wilt thou have me to do? The oftener he prays, the more earnest he becomes. He pleads with God to show him what to do and how to do it. The vast responsibility had been thrown upon him of caring for the spiritual welfare of the neglected thousands in these lower wars. He had been appointed to this work without being trammeled by any specific instructions by the authorities of the church, being left to act at his own discretion in much of his labor. The prayer was continually in his mind and in his heart. Lord, what? What will you have me to do? He prayed for some way to be open to bring the claims of religion to bear upon the hearts and minds of these perishing multitudes. The more he prayed, the more encouraged he was in the joyful expectation that God would show him the way through which hundreds and thousands might be influenced on the subject of religion. But though he prayed and believed, he had not the remotest idea of the methods of God's grace which were about to be employed. The more he prayed, however, the more confident he became that God would show him what he would have him do. He had been earnestly seeking God's blessing and aid and guidance in the work which was before him. He had earnestly sought to be directed and instructed, and that he might be willing to follow the teachings of God's Spirit, whatever they might be. He rose from his knees, inspired with courage and hope derived from above. Shall we describe this man? His age is not far from forty. He is tall, well made, with a remarkable, pleasant, benevolent face, affectionate in his disposition and manner, possessed of indomitable energy and perseverance, having good musical attainments, gifted in prayer and exhortation to a remarkable degree, modest in his demeanor, ardent in his piety, sound in his judgment, having good common sense, a thorough knowledge of human nature, and those traits of character that make him a welcome guest in any house. He is intelligent, and eminently fitted for the position which he has been called to occupy, which up to the present moment he is so worthily filled. Mr. Jeremiah Calvin Lanfear was born in Coxsackie, New York. He became a resident of the city about twenty years ago, engaged in mercantile pursuits, united with the Tabernacle Church on profession of its faith in 1842 and was for eight or nine years a member of the Reverend Dr. James W. Alexander's church. He joined the North Dutch Church in 1857 and in July 1st of the same year entered upon his work as a missionary of that church. Under the direction of its consistory, he began his labors without any plan of instructions and was left to do all the good he could very much in his own way, the consistory always aiding him as much as was in their power. We have looked into this man's journal, which no human eye but our own has read, save the author's. The very first page is characteristic of the man. We copied the opening lines. New York City, July 1st, 1857. Be not weary in well-doing, Second Thessalonians 3, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me, Philippians 4, verse 13. Read the fourth chapter, Second Timothy. Think I feel something of the responsibility of the work in which I have been engaged. Felt a nearness to God in prayer. 
and my entire dependence on him from whom comes all my strength. So began this man his labors in the most neglected portion of the city of New York, the lower wards. And now for the first idea of a noonday prayer meeting, he says, Going my rounds in the performance of my duty one day as I was walking along the streets, the idea was suggested to my mind in an hour of prayer. From twelve to one o'clock would be beneficial to businessmen, who usually in great numbers take that hour for rest and refreshment. The idea was to have singing, prayer, exhortation, relation of religious experience as the case might be, that none should be required to stay the whole hour, that all should come and go as their engagement should allow or require, ere their inclinations dictate. Arrangements were made, and at twelve o'clock noon on the twenty-third day of September, 1857, the door of the third-story lecture room was thrown open. At half-past twelve, the step of a solitary individual was heard upon the stairs. Shortly after, another, and another, then another, and last of all, another until six made up the whole company. We had a good meeting. The Lord was with us to bless us, quote. It will be seen that our missionary sat out the first half of the first noonday prayer meeting alone, or rather he prayed through the first half hour alone. Thus the noonday business men's prayer meeting was inaugurated. It was to have new phases of interest. The old, long, cold, formal routine was to be broken up. Everything was to be arranged for the short stay of those who came. All the exercises were to be brief, pointed, and to the purpose, touching the case in hand. This idea grew out of the pressing necessity of men's engagements. They could come in and stay five minutes, or the whole hours they pleased. Stay in five minutes, they might have an opportunity to take part for no one was to occupy more than five minutes in their remarks or prayer. The second meeting was held a week afterwards, on Wednesday, September 30th, when twenty persons were present. It was a precious meeting. There was much prayer, and the hearts of those present were melted within them. The next meeting was held October 7th. Speaking of this meeting, the private journal says, Prepared for the prayer meeting today at noon. Called to invite a number of persons to be present. Spoke to men as I met them in the street, as my custom is, if I can get their attention. I prayed that the Lord would incline many to come to the place of prayer. Went to the meeting at noon. Present between thirty and forty. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. This meeting was of so animated and encouraging a character that a meeting was appointed for the next day, at which a large number attended. And from this day dates a businessmen's union daily prayer meeting. The meetings were moved down to the middle lecture room as being more commodious. Of the meeting of the 8th of October, it is said in the same journal, attended a prayer meeting at noon, a larger number present and there was a spirit of re-consecration to the service of Christ and a manifest desire to live near his cross. This meeting, as we learn from other sources, was one of uncommon fervency in prayer. 
of deep humility and self-abasement and great desire that God would glorify himself in the outpouring of his Spirit upon them, we are not much surprised to find the following mention of the next meeting, October 9th. Called on a number to invite them to attend a noonday prayer meeting. Went to the meeting at noon. A large number present. The meeting increases in interest. Increases also in numbers. We had a precious time. It was the very gate of heaven. Passing on now to October 13th, we find a rapid advancement in the intensity of religious feeling, as the following extract will show. This being in every sense a faithful and the only record which is preserved of these meetings. Attended the noonday prayer meeting, a large number were present, and God's Spirit was manifestly in our midst. And of the next day, October 14th, it is said, attended the noonday prayer meeting, over 100 present, many of them not professors of religion, but under conviction of sin and seeking an interest in Christ, inquiring what they shall do to be saved. God grant that they find Christ precious to their souls. It is added, this is a cloudy, rainy day. Of the few following meetings, we find such notices as these. A large attendance. A good spirit pervaded the place. A great desire to be humble before God in view of past sins. I feel that God's spirit is moving in the hearts of the people. And now October 23rd, one month from the date of the first noonday prayer meeting, we have this remarkable passage, quote, called on some of the editors of the religious papers to have them notice the interest that is daily manifested in our meetings. Thus, a great revival had actually commenced and had been in progress for some time before any public mention had been made of it. So noiseless had been its footsteps. The religious entrance at the Fulton Street Prayer Meeting, as it was now commonly called, had gone on increasing more and more till its influence began to be powerfully felt abroad in different and distant portions of the city. During the first month of these meetings, many city pastors and many laymen belonging to the churches of New York and Brooklyn had been into one or more of these meetings and had been warmed by the holy fire already kindled. And as the sparks from the burning building are born to kindle other fires, so these carried the fire to their own churches. We come now to another portion of great interest in this work of prayer. Not only in the Fulton Street meeting was prayer made, but morning prayer meetings began to be established in different churches. The Broom Street Church was one of the first to open a morning prayer meeting. Other churches followed, both in New York and Brooklyn, without a pre-concert or any knowledge of each other's movements. Sometime before any other was heard of, and nearly simultaneously with the Fulton Street meeting, if not before, there was instituted a daily morning prayer meeting in the Plymouth Church, Brooklyn. A quiet and unostentatious way, others were commenced earlier or later. In the second month of the Fulton Street meeting, several morning daily prayer meetings were in existence. The fear of imitation held back some from moving in the manner. But more commonly, there was no thought of this. The place of prayer was a most delightful resort, and the places of prayer multiplied because men were moved to prayer. They wished to pray. They felt impelled by some unseen power to pray, felt the pressure of the call to prayer. 
So a place of prayer was no sooner open than Christians flocked to it to pour out their supplications together. Christians of both sexes of all ages or different denominations without the slightest regard to denominational distinctions came together on one common platform of brotherhood in Christ and in the bonds of Christian union sent up their united petitions to the throne of the heavenly giver. The question was never asked to what church does he belong, but the question was does he belong to Christ? The early dawn of the revival was marked by love to Christ love for all his people, love of prayer, and love of personal effort. Never in any former revival since the days of the first Christians was the name of Christ so honored, never so often mentioned, never so precious to the believer, never was such an ardent love to him expressed, never was there so much devotedness to his service. The whole atmosphere was love. It was not strange, then, that those who so loved him should love his image wherever and in whomsoever they saw it. It was a moral necessity. The union of Christians was felt. It needed no professions. Hence there was no room for sectarian jealousies. It was felt that all Christians had a right to pray, and all were commanded to pray. All ought to pray. And if all wished to pray and pray together, who should hinder? This union of Christians in prayer struck the unbelieving world with amazement. It was felt that this was prayer, this love of Christians for one another and this love of Christ, this love of prayer and love of souls, the union of all in prayer whose names were lost sight of disarmed all opposition, so that not a man opened his mouth in opposition. On the contrary, the conviction was conveyed to all minds that this truly is a work of God. The impenitent felt that Christians loved them, that their love of souls made them earnest. The truth now commanded itself to every man's conscience in the sight of God. They felt that this was not the work of man, but the work of God. They were awed by a sense of the divine presence in the prayer meetings and felt that this was holy ground. Christians were very much humbled. Impenitent men saw and felt this. They felt that it was awful to trifle with a place of prayer, sacrilegious to doubt the spirit, the sincerity, the efficiency, or the power of prayer. It began to be felt that Christians obtain answers to prayer, that if they united to pray for any particular man's conversion, that man was sure to be converted. What made them sure? What made them say that they thought this man and that man would soon become Christians? because they had become the subjects of prayer, and men prayed in the prayer meeting as if they expected God would hear and answer prayer. All these convictions combined made almost all classes of men approachable to the subject of religion. It was not difficult to get access to their hearts. God thus prepared the way for their conviction and conversion. We have been speaking at the beginning of the second month of Union Noonday prayer meetings. Concerning them, we find such words as the following in Mr. Lanfear's journal, quote, Attended a noonday prayer meeting. A good attendance and a good spirit prevails, for God is manifest in this movement. A blessed spirit pervades the place. It conversations with awakened sinners. A young man arose in a meeting and gave in his testimony to the benefit under God of coming to the prayer meeting. It is very interesting. Look. At the stage of the revival, 
It is character of the preaching which began to prevail and the kind of subjects which were presented. The Holy Spirit seems to lead the minds of ministers to those portions of his word which he designs to make the fire and the hammer, to break the flinty heart in pieces. He leads in this, as well as everything else which he uses as means of salvation. Let us for a moment look at some of those passages of scripture which were the subjects of discourses during a period of which we have been speaking, and see how remarkable they are. They are the foundation of sermons by a great number of preachers selected without any preconcert, and distinctly show how the minds of these ambassadors of the Lord Jesus were led. These are the texts of sermons which have never been published but delivered during this period in the old Dutch church. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10.16 I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. Psalms 30 verses 6 and 7 And in my prosperity I said I shall never be moved. Lord, by thy favor thou didst make my mountain to stand strong. Thou didst hide thy face, and I was troubled. Psalm 17, verse 5, Hold up my goings in thy paths, that my footsteps slip not. We have taken these passages in course as they were recorded by gentlemen who heard the sermons preached. Being taken without arrangement, they indicate the class of truths which were felt to be appropriate to the state of things. There is something specially noteworthy in these passages, and anyone who will read them and reflect upon them will see the bearing they have. Doubtless there was much prayer connected with the preparation and preaching of these discourses. What a world of love must have been in these sermons. With what untold anxieties did these preachers strive to win sinners to Christ. We ask the reader to ponder upon these passages as a type of the revival and observe that in view of that boundless love which characterizes these meetings for prayers, all those sermons were prepared and preached. The great beginning of the revival was love, and love must have the burden of these appeals. Before the close of the second month of the daily prayer meeting, the two lower lecture rooms had been thrown open, and both were filled immediately. Yet so gradually and unostentatiously had all this widespread religious interest arisen, the one meeting for prayer scarcely had any knowledge of what was doing in any other. The religious interest was now rapidly on the increase and was extending itself to all parts of the country. Many men of business from abroad coming to New York on business would enter into the noonday prayer meetings and become deeply impressed and go to their respective homes to tell what the Lord was doing in New York City. When we come to the history of the third month of prayer, what a change we find rapidly taking place, not only in the city, but all over the land. It was everywhere a revival of prayer. It was not prayer meetings in imitation of the Fulton Street meetings. Those that say so or think so greatly err. God was preparing his glorious way over the nation. It was a desire to pray. The same power that moved to prayer in Fulton Street moved to prayer elsewhere. 
The same characteristics that marked a Fulton Street meeting marked all similar meetings. The Spirit of the Lord was poured out upon these assemblages, and it was this that made the places of prayer all over the land places of great solemnity and earnest inquiry. Men did not doubt, could not doubt, that God was moving in answer to prayer. It was this solemn conviction that silenced all opposition, that awakened the careless and obdurate, that encouraged and gladdened the hearts of Christians, causing a general turning to the Lord. Such a display of love and mercy on the part of the ever-blessed Spirit was never made before. The religious press all over the country heralded the glad news of what the Lord was doing in some places, thus preparing the way for what he was about to do in others. Thousands on thousands of closets bore witness to strong crying and tears before God in prayer all over the land. Thousands of waiting hearts, hearing that Jesus was passing by, begged that he would tarry long enough to look on them. In the very first days of the present year, the secular press in this city began to take notice. In publishing the facts of this great movement to prayer, with scarcely an exception, this was done in the most respectful and approving terms. Most of the secular daily journals of this city spread abroad the intelligence of what was doing. The people demanded it, and the publication of it was a sort of necessity. The revival columns were read with the most eager interest all over the country, and many thousands were influenced by them who never looked into a religious paper. God's hand was in all of this. We give a few extracts from Jeremiah Lanfear's private journal to indicate the means which were used. Quote, a large attendance at the noonday prayer meeting. We distributed a tract entitled Three Words, and each one was given to some friend and asked God's special blessing upon it. Everything was done in prayer. Attended a noonday prayer meeting. It was fully attended. The tract given out today was entitled One Honest Effort. It was to be prayed over and then given away, asking God to bless it on its mission to the salvation of souls. Distributed tracts, called on several young men and conversed with them in regard to their soul salvation. At the noonday prayer meeting, a young man, one out of a great number, told what the Lord had done for his soul by attending the noonday meetings, which sent a thrill through every Christian heart, and which will be remembered with joy. January 5th, 1858 called to converse with some of the editors of the daily papers in regard to having some of the incidents which occur from day to day in the prayer meetings inserted in them, end quote. This is probably the beginning of the notices of the secular press of the transactions of these meetings. At the end of the fourth month, the Fulton Street prayer meeting occupied the three lecture rooms in the Cassistory building and were all filled to their utmost capacity. So were all other places filled in the cities of New York, Brooklyn, Jersey City, Newark, and their vicinity. But the spread of the meetings requires a more special mention in order that we may trace the hand of God in this revival. The three lecture rooms at the old Dutch church had become filled to overflowing, one after the other, until no sitting room or standing room was left. In scores and perhaps hundreds, had to go away 
unable even to get into the halls. How noticeable is one fact, and it must be noticed in order that we may see that the excellency of the power is of God. There had been no eloquent preaching, no energetic and enthusiastic appeals, no attempts to rouse up religious interest. All had been still, solemn, and awful. The simple fact, the great fact was that people were moved to prayer. The people demanded a place to pray. So noiseless was this work of grace that one portion of the community did not know what any other portion were doing in a manner. Instead of devising plans and executing them to stir up the community, the whole community as one man seemed to be already roused. The daily prayer meeting was not the means of the feeling, but the mere expression of it. Never since the days of Pentecost was such a state of the general Christian heart and mind, and ever since the world was made was there such an important epoch. The more we go into the facts of it, the more is the mind filled with adoring wonder and amazement at the stupendous importance and extent of it. Every movement in it seemed to be following, not leading, not creating, but following the developments of a plan already marked out, the end by no means seen from the beginning, and no part of the plan seen only as it was unfolded from day to day by him who devised it all. Who would have foreseen the connection of the meeting of six men for prayer in that upper room, in which was one Presbyterian, one Baptist, one Congregationalist, one Reformed Dutch, with the events which were to follow? When was there ever such a meeting before, made up of such elements, met for such a purpose at such an hour? and gathered up without the shadow of any human contrivance. To any of the results which followed that haste with which God makes haste, slowly, and by which a whole Christian nation was to be shaken from center to circumference. To this meeting in the upper room, no one knew who was coming, or whether any one would come, and yet we find there the very elements of that deeply affecting Christian union which was a golden chain by which millions of Christian hearts were to be bound together, as they had never been in all time, by which a true unity of the Church of Christ was to be manifested. Whose hand was in this? But the hand of God. In this first meeting was a union of different denominations, as represented there to pray, a union in the blessed work of prayer. But who can fail to see that in this God is to be acknowledged and exalted? His hand had done it, and his name shall have all the glory. We shall see in the sequel how rapid was the progress of the work from the point where we now are. But God had a work to do, and his Holy Spirit was preparing the way. Going back to that first noonday prayer meeting, and looking forward, we cannot see what it was that was to be done, but from our present standpoint, looking backward over the history of the past, we can plainly see what it was. This revival is to be the precursor of greater and more wonderful things which are yet to be revealed in the redeeming providence of God. What these are we cannot tell, but coming events cast their shadows before. As this is a law in the kingdoms of nature, providence, and grace, so we may unhesitatingly conclude that however eventful may be the interests of the present times, we shall see greater things than these.
The time was to be hastened, when larger views were to be taken, nobler aims indulged, more far-reaching plans laid, more costly sacrifices made, more lofty designs executed. The religious press got the spirit of the day and the occasion, and spoke out as one voice in the tone of the prevailing and coming interest, and much more, in the beams of the light which was now breaking upon the world. Going back to this period, one paper says, We're doing no more than we should always do, and can easily do, consistently with the performance of every duty. Have a few weak prayers brought such a blessing, and shall we desist from praying? So long as the promise stands, ask, and it shall be given you. So long as we know that our God faints not, neither is weary. So long as the fields are white to the harvest of immortal souls, shall we cease calling upon God. Another says, Shall the work cease? Shall a revival of religion in some respects the most remarkable the church has ever enjoyed come to an end because it is no longer winter, but summer, as though the grace of God were like some compounds that can endure only one climate? No one can think that God chooses to have it so, to church, or more truly, individual churches, if often made what might be called exhaustive efforts for the conversion of sinners. They have taxed to the utmost for a few weeks both soul and body of every earnest man they could enlist. Such efforts must be relaxed. Flesh and blood cannot sustain them, but the present revival has had no such history. The church is still fresh, and may labor on indefinitely just as she has been laboring, and that without sinning against any law of mental or physical health. This revival has not overtaxed us. It has only toned us up. It has brought religion into alliance with our ordinary engagements. It has given to our social character a completeness and balance which it never had before. So far as it has gone, it is an advance towards soundness and strength, and to fall back from it is not to rest after labor, but to be palsied. And another, the awakening is not only progressing in unabated power throughout the country as a whole, and not only extending into new regions where it has hitherto been less felt, but in this city, if we are not deceived, a real earnestness of the churches for a continuance of the work is manifesting itself in more deliberate and far-reaching plans for carrying forward permanent labors of the kind so signally blessed. We must shake off old habits of mind and arouse ourselves earnestly to the unprecedented demands of the time. God never called any former generation of men on this earth, as we are now called. End quote. There was preparation all over the city and all over the land. God had made it and men began to see it, and to look upward. Early in February it was felt that these retreating hundreds who came to the place of prayer in Fulton Street, and could not get in, must be accommodated elsewhere. The old John Street Methodist Church, only one square removed, was thrown open for noon prayer meetings by our Methodist brethren, and the whole body of the church was immediately filled every day at noon with businessmen who had come, and did come, to pray. The galleries, too, were occupied all round the church, chiefly by ladies. 
No denominational element seemed to be prominent one above another. No one could have told who had come in a stranger from the character of the meeting, whether it was held in Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, or Congregationalist church, or that of any other denomination. It was found at once that the audience room was insufficient, and the basement lecture room was opened and immediately filled. It was estimated that 2,000 persons attended upon these services daily. There were now five regular noonday services, three in the Fulton Street and two in the John Street churches, and yet hundreds would go away, unable to get into any of them. So much were men moved to prayer. Answers to prayer came down speedily, and multitudes were now turning to God and seeking Him with all their heart. On the 17th of March, Burton's Old Theater in Chambers Street was opened by a number of merchants in that vicinity for a noonday prayer meeting. This was thronged to excess after the first meeting, for half an hour before the time to commence the services. The old theater would be crowded to its utmost capacity. In every nook and corner, with most solemn and deeply affected audiences, the streets, and all means of access, were blocked up before the hour of prayer commenced, and hundreds would stand in the street during the hour. This continued to be the case until the building was required by the United States courts, when the further use of it for prayer meetings ceased. Immediately a store, number 69 Broadway, second story, was procured and comfortably fitted up for the purpose of prayer meetings. The room was 25 by 100 feet, and this from day to day was filled, and the exercises were solemn beyond description. After a time, the Broadway meeting was removed to number 175, the same street. Here it was sustained by Christians in that part of the city of all denominations. We shall never forget being present at one of those meetings, when it was conducted in the usual manner by the Right Reverend Bishop Micklevane of Ohio. We shall never forget the earnestness of his opening prayer. When he kneeled down on the floor and led the devotion so humble, so urgent, so importunate, so believing, so imbued with the revival spirit. We shall never forget his short, eloquent closing address, full of deep emotion, full of brotherly kindness, full of thankfulness and joy. It described a work of grace as it lay in his own mind. It recognized the hand of God in its inception, in every step of its progress. It rejoiced at the spirit of grace and supplication which had been poured out on all Christians. That address will long live in the memories of those who heard it. And besides these, other meetings were established in almost every part of New York, in the surrounding cities. The great features of all these meetings were union and prayer and corresponding effort. A careful inquiry in regard to the facts convinces us that not less than 150 meetings for prayer in this city, in Brooklyn, were held daily at the time of which we are now writing, all, without one single exception, partaken of the same general character.